Hello, this is host Joey Lovato. With all the news about the coronavirus, we've decided to make a special audio story that will come out early next week with all of our coverage. So make sure to keep a lookout for that, and in the meantime, enjoy this lighter episode of Indie Matters. Thank you. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And Jacob, this week we hear a story from reporter Jackie Valley where you and her went to a bookstore. That's right. We've been so inundated with politics lately with the caucus that we'd figured we'd take a step back for this first segment. Jackie and I went and talked with Drew Cohen, the co-owner of Writer's Block, an independent bookstore here in Las Vegas, to find out what people are reading and what book trends they've seen in 2020. That sounds great. And after that, you talked to intern Shannon Miller about a story she's been working on. Yeah, she interviewed Ramon Savoy. He's a former publishing editor and reporter of the Las Vegas Sentinel Voice. That was a newspaper that focused on the black communities here in Las Vegas that stopped publishing in 2014. And at the end of the episode, John tells me about one of his favorite memories he has from covering campaigns and politics in the state for the last couple years. But before any of that, let's hear a few indie stories read for our partners over at KUNR Public Radio. At a Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee hearing on the DOE budget, Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto asked Briette what the department would do if Congress provided funds for the Yucca Project in the current fiscal year. In response, Briette said the department will continue to maintain the site north of Las Vegas, but is planning to look for alternatives to Yucca Mountain. The move comes after President Trump sought funding for the project during the first three years of his administration. The president subsequently reversed course this year and in a tweet last month said he heard Nevadans on the issue of Yucca. Most Nevada lawmakers and business interest groups oppose the project's proposed site. This story was originally written by Riley Snyder. Southwest Gas is proposing a sizable rate increase for Nevada's natural gas customers. As part of the Nevada's Public Utility Commission's triennial review of the utilities' rates, Southwest Gas is proposing an increase of about $38 million statewide to help fund a variety of new and replacement infrastructure projects. For northern Nevada customers, the roughly 3% increase would amount to an extra $2.50 a month on their bill. In southern Nevada, customers can expect to see a $4 hike each month. According to the company's filing, the higher rates are needed to help offset the cost of infrastructure upgrades, regular salary increases for its employees, and a variety of other operations costs in order to maintain its normal rate of return. With the Nevada Independent, I'm Tabitha Mueller. Okay, well, welcome to the Indie Matters podcast. I'm Jackie Valley, a reporter, and today I'm with Drew Cohen, the co-owner of Writer's Block in downtown Las Vegas. Welcome, Drew. Hey, thanks for having me, Jackie. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so we're excited. We want to talk about some book trends, what people are reading in 2020. Um, But just to begin, can you tell us a little bit about Writer's Block and its history? Sure, yeah. So the Writer's Block is actually the only independent general interest, meaning like we sell across the different genres, uh, bookstore in Southern Nevada. So we're the only one in Vegas, and by, you know, we're also the only one in the, the Southern part of the state. We opened in downtown Vegas in late 2014, and we recently reopened after being closed for a little while at a new location at 6th Street and Bonneville Avenue. So we have about 20,000 books in stock. Um, we carry new releases, but also a, a pretty generous allocation of, of like backlist, what we call backlist older titles that are just, you know, books we always keep in stock. 
stock. We also do free creative writing classes for children ages 5 through 18 and various events like book clubs and uh, author appearances, primarily in conjunction with uh, Black Mountain Institute at UNLV. Very fun. So we'll get right to the, the main first question, which is what were people reading in 2019 buying, you know, asking you about? Yeah, we're we are in a particular situation at our bookstore. And I think this is probably true for most independent bookstores where the audience that shops at our store is probably different than the audience that is shopping from Amazon and even like Barnes and Noble or big box stores. So we we tend to skew a little more literary. So we were getting, you know, we get a lot of fiction readers. I mean, that's perennially the thing we sell the most of. And in 2019, people were doubling down on realistic fiction. There were some high-profile genre books, like Marlon James's fantasy novel, the first in a trilogy. But by and large, it felt like the year was dominated by writers like Ben Lerner and Sally Rooney, the Irish novelist. Those were some of our big, their their novels were some of the most sold books at our store that year. Um, felt like people are interested in dissecting social scenarios, social drama in a way that makes a lot of sense given how the scrutiny that we're all undergoing right now politically, I think it makes sense that people are doubling down on novels of manners, which to a certain extent, I think both of those books qualify. Not a lot of political books have been selling. That was true in 2019. It remains true in at least the first month of 2020. I think there's a fatigue that has set in uh, regarding books about Trump and the impeachment and I mean these various like pot boiling pot boiling books that get released that have new allegations and whatnot they they tend to fall um, on deaf ears at least at our store it's been interesting hearing about this new Bolton book because I'm already like yeah no one's gonna actually want to read this book like they're they're merely concerned with how the content can be kind of just lifted out of the book and used politically but I don't think anyone actually wants to read this book that's really interesting because we did want to ask you about that whether the upcoming 2020 election was sparking interest in political books it has in and it hasn't it has in ways that i've been really pleased by i've noticed like a kind of reinvigoration especially among our younger customers in i think like substantial political books like books that are more like theory and social science and less just either policy statements or kind of just yeah you know uh, sort of true crime procedural books masquerading as political books we sell a lot of titles from like verso books which is a leftist press that's based out of new york and london one of our big sellers over the latter part of 2019 was Andrea Long Chu's Females, A Concern, which is this extremely chewy, interesting, provocative gender studies book. And it, it like flew off our shelves. We're seeing a lot of that. I'm also seeing people purchasing the, I guess what you'd call just the policy statement books more so than I'm used to, which I think is is also a good sign. So we've sold a fair amount of Elizabeth Warren's books, Bernie Sanders, and then Andrew Yang's book has sold surprisingly well. Like it's a book that I was uh, apprehensive about carrying. Business books have a short shelf life. You know, when the political season's over, there's really nothing you can do with them. But we've had a lot of people inquiring after his book particularly. That's interesting. Now those two initial authors you mentioned, what are the names of their books for 
listening oh, to. Oh, sure. Yeah, I kind of uh, glossed over that. So Ben Lerner's novel, The Topeka School, was a big seller for us. It's an autobiographical novel, what is now being called like autofiction with increasing frequency uh, in, like, in, in literary circles. It's about a psychoanalytic institute in Topeka in the, the late part of the 1990s. And it shuttles between a few different characters, uh, two parents who, who work at this institute and their, their teenage son. And the Sally Rooney novel, Normal People, was a big seller throughout the year. We opened at this new location in April, and it was just a constant bestseller for us. It's a novel that dissects the, uh, the nuances uh, between a, a male female romantic relationship, sort of coming of age relationship, the two meet in high school, and it follows them into college. Great. Those both sound really interesting. You also had mentioned that realism was a genre gaining. Yeah. So I mean, what is that and why? (laughs) Yeah. So both of these books and a lot of the books that are selling well, and a lot of the memoirs that are selling well, there's a, there seems to be more of a concern, I would say with reality rather than escapism, which I, this may not be a trend at all bookstores, but we've definitely seen it here. I think the consensus for a while was that young adult literature was reigning supreme, that genre books, fiction, or uh, science fiction, I should say, fantasy, especially books that are serialized, you know, like three book series, six book series. These were books that get were getting a lot of media attention and there seems to be an abatement of interest in them to some extent. I don't know what this means, you know, culturally, but I, it's something I've definitely observed. I've also noticed a larger appetite for nonfiction among, and, and criticism among readers like Gia Tolentino's book Trick Mirror, for example, which is a collection of of essays, which are primarily uh, either memoristic exercises or cultural theory. That book has sold tremendously well. And the idea that a a collection of nonfiction essays would be a bestseller, even five years ago, would, would be surprising, I think, to a lot of people. Well, there's one book that's generated some controversy, and that's Oprah's decision to make American Dirt her book club book. Uh, Have you read that? Do you have thoughts on it? Sure, yeah. Well, I've definitely followed the controversy. I haven't read the book myself. I'm not interested in reading it based on the bit that I've read of it, the copies that we have, and also some of the reviews from critics that I find reliable. I mean, it's been an interesting controversy because of what I think it reveals about how we talk about art and entertainment right now. There's an incredible concern with the identities of authors and making judgments on works of art and entertainment that don't necessarily involve the the work of art or entertainment itself, but are questions about who made it and whether they have permission to make it or whether their personal conduct calls into question whether we should be consuming the things they make, um, which I think is an extension of, of Me Too. There's just a hyper concern with the private lives. Yeah, I guess we should uh, remind listeners that this book by Janine Cummins explores a an immigrant's journey from Mexico, I believe. Yes, yes. And it's been criticized a little bit by some who say she's, you know, doesn't really identify with that and maybe it was a little bit hyperbolic in some of the descriptions. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the, the the backstory is that she is a white identifying author. She lives comfortably in New York City. And she I, I think I believe she has a Puerto Rican grandmother that was a partly an inspiration for pursuing the novel. But a lot of critics of the book have said that she doesn't have the sort of the identitarian basis to be writing this book. It's not her story to tell. And then 
more so, and I think this is the more a more compelling argument. It's apparently just, you know, a lot of people have said it's not a very good book. <laughs> the New York Times really dug into it just on its literary merits without even touching on the subject matter. I, I mean, my personal opinion on this is that this is an issue that the publisher created for itself and has a lot more to do with how books are promoted and circulated. She got an enormous advance, a seven-figure advance. They printed a tremendous number of copies of this book, and it was really sold to readers and to bookstore buyers like myself as like the must-have book of the season. It was sort of pre-anointed as the big book. And then whenever Oprah endorses something that really, that's just, that doubles down on that. So when you have that degree of hype and that much publisher energy behind a book, and when the book maybe hasn't been vetted sufficiently, I think you're like, you're asking for a firestorm like this. I think if this book wasn't promoted to the degree it was, I don't think we, we obviously would not be talking about it the way we are. That's a really interesting point. Well, and on that note, who are some local authors that we should be watching and maybe reading? Sure, yeah. So Vegas is a tough town in terms of like who, you know, who's writing about Vegas and where that writing goes. I feel like it's a... you know, we do sell mostly traditionally, you know, published titles at our store. So there's kind of a dearth of Vegas literature at the moment. I mean, of course, I would watch out for Amanda Fortini, who is a journalist who's currently based in Vegas and has written some really compelling pieces about Vegas that have been published in some major outlets that I think have been really penetrating. She has a, a a long essay out in the latest issue of The Believer magazine, which is now published out of Vegas. It's a adaptation, or not an adaptation, but it's a fuller version of a, of a lecture she gave at UNLV last year. So I would definitely look out for her work. But man, it's tough. Like there isn't, I do feel like Vegas is potentially underserved. Certainly how it's depicted nationally and how its writers are represented nationally. They're not represented nationally very well. We have a lot of writers circulating in and out of Vegas in our building, in fact. The Black Mountain Institute here hosts fellowships for approximately, you know, five or six months for authors. So there's work being generated here. But it's something I'm waiting for and I'm curious to see is more literature for and about Vegas. Yeah, definitely. Well, switching gears a little bit, we just entered 2020. You know, people live on their iPhones. They rely on the likes of Amazon Prime. Where does a brick-and-mortar bookstore like Writer's Block fit into today's society? Yeah, I think we are... I don't want to use the word community because I feel like it's overused, dangerously overused. But but I think we are, it can be isolating to read. Like reading is a solitary activity primarily. And especially for people who still read a lot of fiction and creative nonfiction and poetry and things like that, it can be hard to find other people who share that interest. So I think a brick and mortar bookstore can provide that to some extent. You're going to a business where the operators of that business are just as interested in this stuff as you are, and presumably the people working at the bookstore are as well, and the other shoppers. It gives it, it takes what is sometimes a very disembodied activity and gives it a little bit of tangibility and and a social dimension. I think people like tangible things. Like, they like to hold things. They like physical books. There's a, a sort of a withdrawal, I think, collectively we're having in this digital moment. So I think independent bookstores can serve that. People like the tangible books. I, you know, it's a constant criticism with Kindles and devices like that. I also hear a lot of people talking about listening to audiobooks on their commutes. And do you hear? Do you get a lot of interest in that? And what's your perspective on that as a, a medium for? We get a degree of interest in it. Of course, most people are now doing audiobooks through apps on their phone, and we actually 
have partnered with this really wonderful app called Libro FM. That's the indie bookstore equivalent to Audible. So instead of partnering with a company that that is part of Amazon, the way Audible is with Libro FM, you can. It's the same exact service, pretty much, with access to the same books. We do refer people to that, but it's not something we talk about much on a daily basis in the store because most of our customers are just there for the physical books. But I mean, I listen to audiobooks, so I think it's a great way to read books. And lastly, you probably get this too, but I hear people say so often, oh, I I would like to read more. I, I just don't have time, don't know how to get started. What's your advice for people who aspire to be voracious readers? I'm, I am someone who aspires to be more voracious, so I really sympathize with that plight. I think you just have to make the time, I think, put down your phone a little bit more often and substitute it with reading a book. I bring a book with me everywhere, and if you can just snatch a few minutes reading, I mean, even when you're, like, checking out at the supermarket, the instinct is to pull out your phone and scroll Twitter or whatever you're doing. You could be reading in that moment, and I, I think that... Uh, it, it can be really like kind of cleansing not to be too new agey activity like because I you know I often feel a lot of like mental hypertension where I am going from one screen to another um, taking in so many so much printed matter on my device that reading gives me a moment to breathe so I would just suggest that people try to find that time whether it's just reading before bed or in the morning I think can be a great time to read or just substituting idle moments you'd be reading on your phone with pulling out a, even just a magazine or something out of your bag And last but not least, do you have a favorite book and what is it? So my favorite book of all time is probably Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth. So like that's probably not maybe a random answer. It's like a late or early 20th century novel. I mean, I I really love just to read fiction. I mean, lately, um, probably the book I sell the most often at the store is this novel, Mrs. Caliban, that was recently reissued after being out of print for a little while. It's about a woman who falls in love with a uh, sea creature, a, a humanoid sea creature. It's like this really tender, uh, sweet, beautiful book um, with this like weird sci-fi uh, plot. But yeah, those are those are two of my faves. Well, thank you so much for joining us and lending your insight. It's fascinating, and we uh, we'll catch up with you later this year to see what trends have changed. Super. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Nevada used to have a newspaper with stories written by and for its African-American community. Used to because the publisher, Ramon Savoy, decided to put a stop to the Las Vegas Sentinel Voice, Nevada's only African-American community newspaper, in January of 2014. Our very own Shannon Miller sat down with Ramon to get the inside story on the life and times of the Sentinel Voice, and she joins me now. Shannon, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jacob. All right, Shannon, so let's start simple. Who is Ramon Savoy? Ramon Savoy is pretty well known in the community right now. He's hosting a radio show called Like It Is, and it's like an hour-long radio show. They have politicians on, educators, community leaders, but one thing I asked is if they have celebrities on, and Savoy was sure to correct me or check me and say that. They are really interested in people who are of interest to the community, can um, lead to action, make a difference, and that's kind of what he's been all about in his history in the media here in Las Vegas. So I spoke with Ramon last month in February, and we were able to look in on UNLV's special collections archives of the Las Vegas Sentinel Voice, which date back to 1982, and they also have microform copies of it that are available to the public. So you can actually go and look at this newspaper. That's right, yeah, it's at UNLV Special Collections. 
Okay, and and so where did he come from? Where is he from originally? Not many people are, you know, grew born and raised in Las Vegas. Right. Yeah. He and if you listen to the radio, you can kind of hear it. But he definitely talks like a Harlemite. He's from Harlem, New York, and that's definitely where he says he got his street smarts. And that's where he went to college. That's where he kind of got his feet wet in broadcast media, and that is his passion. And when he moved out to Las Vegas, that's when he started getting involved in print media. When he moved to Las Vegas, he moved because of Nellis Air Force Base. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So Ramon was born in 1954 and was in college in 1972. And then I think the decision to join the Air Force came in 1977. Shortly after he made that decision, he married his wife, Lynette. And she was basically at the ceremony back last month where Savoy was honored with a designated day for him on February 4th. That's Ramon Savoy Day in the city of Las Vegas. Well, let's listen to a clip real quick about how Ramon got here. Well, in those six years that I, that I was at Nellis Air Force Base, the amount of time that I worked day shift, if it was 18 months out of, out of, out of the six years in the service, I was always swings and grave. And one of the reasons because I had a shaving waiver. And Nellis Air Force Base always had important people you know, you had the generals and, and high bird generals and just congressmen and everything. So I was not to be really seen because I didn't represent what the service was. My appearance, you know, image is everything in the Air Force. So how did you get into media, I guess? just generally? When I was in college. Okay. When I was in college, I, was, uh, I went to City College in New York. I didn't graduate. And they had a, a radio station. And so with all that, how did he end up at the Sentinel Voice? I mean, he's a radio guy. So, you know, how does he end up at a newspaper? So he, as he was leaving the Air Force, and while he was in the Air Force, he did work some other jobs. He said he worked at Sears Parts Department, and he worked for another ad agency, making sure that their flyers were distributed. And in 1984, just as he was kind of transitioning out of his six years of service that the Air Force requires, that's when he started getting involved with local radio stations, KCEP and KUNV. And... Um, met the Browns that way. Ed and Betty Brown were kind of well-known in the community already. Ed Brown was actually the boxing commissioner of the Nevada Athletic Commission, and the couple had already been involved with another newspaper that had um, been around since the 1950s. It was also an African-American newspaper called the Las Vegas Voice. So in 1981, they had already been working on that. They started the Sentinel in 1981. And then in 1982, they merged the Voice and the Sentinel to create the Las Vegas Sentinel Voice. Okay. And so you talked to him about this experience. Let's listen to a clip of that right now. When I came aboard with uh, Ms. Brown, pointing out to her that people are not reading the paper or people are not interested in the paper because if we just print things, the battalions, you know, the the, the, the the fashion show, if it's all soft, if it's all soft, people were like, but what's happening, what's happening inside of our community? So I stressed that and she said, okay. So that changes, that was, that's how it evolved in that sense that I was able to impress upon her that, you know, we need to get a little more tougher and rougher. And if it means, you know, I had to write a story or take the pictures and, and do what it was what's necessary, then, was, then she said, you know, she didn't have a problem with that. And then there was people that like, you know, you need, a, you know, as you say, investors, you know, did you want, you know, they, I, I felt like understanding the integrity of the paper was very number one. I didn't want somebody to 
to get it that maybe had an agenda or was going to use it and, and had that old step-in-fetching type of mentality of what they would do with a black paper. So my thing is, okay, if the Sentinel's not around, somebody else, just start your own paper. You understand? Just start your own paper. And there was a lot of lawyers and doctors that owned black papers. And you know why? Because they was a losing money concept and they could use it for tax purposes. So a lot of them just had these papers for tax situations. And so what was important to Ramon about making sure that this paper was actually getting to the community, right, especially, and, and where was this distributed? Yeah, um, Ramon definitely told me that he, it was basically one of the biggest tasks for him was just making sure that it got out, not necessarily how many pages were in it. And he had some help making sure the content in it was good, but it was mostly distributed in the historic West side. And, and one of the reasons he said is because that's where the black people were, which was the target audience of the paper. And also talked about issues that really centered African-Americans. 89106 is the bread and butter, because that's where black people are. But I tried to expand, you know, I would go to places that, hey, you know, you have black, you have blacks that come in here and shop. Can we put it up on your calendar? You know, you had some places that did and some places that did. My whole idea is get the paper out there. See, when I first got involved with the paper, I thought it was more important to have a lot of pages. But the advertiser don't give a d how many pages it is. It's how many people that sees this ad. So 89106 um, is the current zip code for what we now know as the historic West Side. And that's just been historically Las Vegas's African-American neighborhood. Okay, and certainly publishing a community newspaper then and now. I mean, you run into a lot of local politicians. Did he, ever, did he talk about that? Have any war stories? Yes, he did, actually. They used to have editorials a lot before he kind of took over a more editorial role at the newspaper. So certain figures like uh, spokespeople for the Clark County School District or politicians like in the legislature would often, the words he used was try to push their own agenda in the editorials, but he put an end to that apparently when he took over in 1996. Well, let's take a listen to him explaining a little bit of the process. There was no actual dollars coming into the community. So that was one of the things that, that made a difference is that how are we going to improve our area if we don't have it developed? So I, I kind of got in trouble for that because I was so strong um, and still was that the integrity of the paper. So, so you know, if you, you know what Ramon is going to do, and and he, he ain't going to fluff it. You know, I remember, uh, I remember, you know, certain politicians. They're like, "We'll write the story, Ramon. Just put it in." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" You know, they don't work like that. So, say like we got it, 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 we got in a little hot water because. I didn't have, we didn't have great reporters, you know, we had students and so forth. So naturally, they would, they would look at the Review Journal or the Sun to get background or information. So then they felt like we were just, we were just an antidote to, to the RJ and the Sun, what they wrote with just another little twist to it. But it didn't, it didn't put them in a very good light. They felt uncomfortable that, you know, you're the Sentinel, you're the black paper. And I said like, when you do good, you're good. And if you do bad, that's also good for us. Cause we got, <laughs> you know, because it lets the people know that we're not trying to sugarcoat nothing. Yeah. We're just trying to be straight up with it. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I think that's, that helped me in establish myself in the community because it's like, hey, you're going to get what you get with Ramon. 
So it's been more than six years since the paper published its last issue. Why did Ramon decide to pack the whole thing up instead of just leaving the paper? So he had been basically working with freelancers for the most part in terms of writing the stories in the paper. And at that point, he said that there wasn't really anyone to pick it up. And he felt that the end of the Sentinel Voice as a weekly print magazine, it didn't necessarily mean the end of telling the news, telling stories, especially for the African-American community in Las Vegas. So one way I kind of see that living on is through his radio show, but he says you don't need the Sentinel voice in order to do these things that you can go out and be, I guess, an agent of change or a change agent and be sure to be involved in the community without necessarily needing the paper and its reputation and all the history behind it. So the thing of, of, of that, or sitting down with your children and, and talking to them about what some of the stories are and so forth and so on, seems like it has to be something hard-hitting before younger individuals find the importance of what news is. You know, it's, it has to be, you know, the choking, the shooting, and so forth, you know, the, the injustices before they want justice, rather than take, take the lead in going forth in, in showing that it's important to do this up front than on the back end. Because then on the back end, somebody dies in the, in the interim. Wow. Fascinating story, Shannon. And that entire written story, which I'll have a lot more detail than this did, will be up on the NevadaIndependent.com this weekend. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jacob. All right. Hey, John, how's it going? Hey, Joey, what's going on? Not much. We just finished up the Nevada caucus about two weeks ago, and uh, it was two weeks ago or last week? All the time runs together, Joey. We're so busy <laughs> I, here at the Indy. I know, I know. I can't even remember if it was two weeks ago or last week. But I figured it would be kind of fun to, to have you tell... You You have a lot of stories a lot of from the past about uh This Nevadans. means that I'm old? Joey, is this, your, is this your nice way of telling the boss that he's old? Is, is that what you're look, doing? Look, John, I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, to ruffle any feathers, but uh, you know, you're not the, the young journalist you once were, but I still think you have the energy of a young journalist. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. <laughs> I think you have more energy than most of us on staff, which is pretty amazing, to be completely honest. I try. <laughs> but but you you have seen a few caucuses, and um, I, we have heard a couple stories, and, and there's one that you were telling me that I think was would just be pretty funny to tell on the podcast. So do you want to go ahead and tell me about what that was? Yeah, so let me give just a little bit of history here, uh, Joey. Uh, I, I covered, as you pointed out, I've been covering politics here for a long time, since 1986, and we were not a factor in the presidential race at all. Nevada was way back in the schedule, and, and so no one paid attention to us. Then in 2007, Harry Reid, who was then the most powerful guy uh, in, in, in Nevada and one of the most powerful guys in the country, went to the Democratic National Committee and said, it's time that you put a diverse state into the early state mix. We want to be in there. Put Nevada in. And of course, Harry Reid had the juice to get that done. Uh, And so this was the first time it was going to be done in early 2008. And of course, he and all his people he had put into the Democratic Party were hyping this like crazy. And uh, he came out and during one of his interviews and like Harry Reid always does, just said what was on his mind and said there's going to be more than 100,000 people Turn, turning out uh, at this first caucus. And, I, and so I, I had a column and a, and, and a TV show at the time, and in both places I scoffed at him. I said, that's nonsense. They've never had more than a few thousand. And so that night, when I was covering it live on the TV station that, that I was uh, working for at the time, 
uh, it came through that there was going to be uh, almost 118,000, I believe, and I was talking about it and, on, on the air, and, and suddenly they said, well, Harry Reid is calling in to, 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 to the program. <laughs> and I looked at the anchor, so you got to be kidding. And, and so Harry Reid is only he can do, came on and said, I just wanted to come on and tell you that I was right and Ralston was wrong, as usual, goodbye. That's just <laughs> classic Harry Reid. And he remembers it uh, to this day. All these years later, Joey, and and, and still brings it up uh, occasionally uh, when when we talk. And remember, that was the high point too of the caucus. Well, people forget about that too. Is that people hate the caucus now, and we're not going to have one ever again. It's going to be a primary. They'll vote on that in the next legislature. But Harry Reid wanted that caucus uh, because they the Democratic Party wanted to use it as an organizing uh, enthusiasm tool. And what really I think was going on. And this is the great story that will be told for history someday is Harry Reid really wanted that caucus in 2008, which registered 30,000 voters in one day, new voters, because he was up in the following cycle. And he was very worried about his reelection. And he, as the ruthless guy that he is, wanted to make sure that he had that bit of an advantage. And he needed it. Uh, remember I said they registered 30,000 people on that day. They continued to build that lead, and he won by about 40,000 votes in, tw in 2010. So none of that is a coincidence. <laughs> well, I'm sure that that's the, it's the only time you've ever been wrong. It's, it's the only time I've publicly had to admit I was wrong, Joey. And, and yeah, so we've had this caucus now going on for uh, about, uh, what, 12 years? And do you think that it had a good run, or are you glad to see it go? I think I'm glad to see it go just because it, it, there's so many headaches associated with a caucus, especially this last one. But I should tell you one other funny story is after Harry Reid got this done, the Republicans were mocking the Democrats and, and didn't do anything. And then suddenly they said, hey, wait a second, this could be good for us too. move theirs up uh, to, to an early day, too. And then they've had uh, a really bad incidents with their caucus, including once when it took them three days, it was like Iowa, to count the votes. And that was only 30,000 or so votes, Joey, but they were so inept that they had trouble counting it. And there was also a great controversy about why there was a caucus site at Sheldon Adelson's school. You know, he has a private school uh. here in Vegas and they had one there and they said, oh, they're just kowtowing to Sheldon Adelson. And that was a big controversy uh, too. So the Republicans have had their share of incidents as well. Well, uh, hopefully next year we, or not next year, but in the next, <laughs> the next four years or so, the next caucus cycle, we will uh, not have a caucus of a primary. I so. think caucuses are dead in America, uh, Joey. Yeah. Iowa's not going to have one. Wyoming's the only other one, I believe. And we are definitely not going to have a caucus ever again. That was another funny Nevada story. Suddenly, right after the caucus, which they deemed a success, Harry Reid said, no more, came out. And then suddenly, <laughs> right after that, the state Democratic Party chairman, William McCurdy, said the same thing. And then the governor came out, like obvious choreography. But what people don't realize is going on there is that Nevada may lose its early state status. And so they're saying they're trying to send a message to the Democratic National Committee, hey, no more caucus. We promise. We'll do a primary. Just keep us early. And, of course, Harry Reid, and, and to be honest with you, myself, too, want us to be first because that would be great uh, for the state and, of course, great for the indie, Joey. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, if you uh, if you want to support us, you know where to do that, our website and the support our work page. <laughs> I love that, Joey. You're always thinking. <laughs> That's right. All right, John. Well, thanks for chatting with me. You bet.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Drew Cohen and Ramon Savoy for being on today, as well as Jackie, Shannon, and John. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen. And if you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can do so by emailing me at jacob at thenvnd.com or joey at joey at thenvnd.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at thenvnd.com. People with Bodies is our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, here with reporter and producer Jacob Solis, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>